Warning, this episode contains spoilers and strong language. Welcome everybody to the latest Janocrypha installment of Masters of Carpentry. I am Noel, and this is the first of a series of episodes where I'm going to be exploring all of the various spin-offs of John Carpenter's The Thing, the full episode of which you can already find at mastersofcarpentry.blogspot.com, as well as an episode about the 1951 adaptation Thing from Another World. So this is the first of four comic book spin-offs which were published by Dark Horse Comics throughout the 90s. Dark Horse was founded in 1986, and while they quickly made a name for themselves with creator-driven titles like Concrete, Trekker, and The American, much of their output quickly became focused on licensed tie-ins, first with Aliens in 1988, then Predator in 1989, then many more over the years, including Star Wars, Indiana Jones, and Conan. This, as well as successful ventures in licensed manga, allowed them to continue exploring creator-owned works such as Sin City and Hellboy. The first series we're covering is The Thing from Another World, and both issues were published in 1991. The reason they went with the more expansive title of the 1951 film adaptation was due to Marvel Comics' use of The Thing. I'm not sure if they were just worried about a trademark challenge or if an actual challenge had been made, but we can definitely credit Petunia Grimm's number one blue-eyed nephew for that title. The writer is Chuck Ferrer, a former Navy SEAL who broke into Hollywood with a spec script titled, you guessed it, Navy SEALs. Other films Ferrer has worked on are Hard Target, Darkman, Point of Impact, Barbed Wire, The Jackal, Arlington Road, Second Nature, and Red Planet. And he's additionally worked on the 90s FMV video games Flash Traffic and Silent Steel, and has since broken into prose with his memoir Warrior Soul and debut novel Killing Shay. He became involved at Dark Horse around this time due to his spec script Virus, which he successfully hoped to better the chances of selling by first adapting it into a comic book miniseries and the film ultimately followed six years later, co-produced by Dark Horse Studios. While Ferrer's official website claims he's written six comic books over the years, all that I've been able to find are Virus and this installment of Thing from Another World. I honestly don't know if he's just counting the other Thing comics, because he didn't write those Thing comics, and I'm not quite sure what's going on there. The art is by John Higgins, who started a long venture in the mid-70s with the British comic mag 2000 AD, specifically with their character of Judge Dredd, which continues to this day. He's done pencils, covers, the occasional bits of writing, but became most noted as a colorist, particularly for his work on Watchmen and The Killing Joke. He's also among the non-Alan Moore personnel who returned for Before Watchmen, which I personally applaud and want more of, where he did the Curse of the Crimson Corsair strip, first with writer Len Wein before also taking over writing duties himself. Now on to Thing from Another World. Both issues have covers by John Higgins. They're very striking and violent paintings of the thing erupting in various forms from humans. Not really fully tied into images from the book itself, but they're definitely eye-catchers. They're very gory eye-catchers, so I wonder how well they did with parents back in the days when these were on the shelf, but they definitely catch the eye. Issue 1 opens with one figure carrying another on his shoulders as they wander through the Antarctic wasteland. The conscious one is Childs, the unconscious one MacReady. They reach the shoreline and flag down a hulking ship. McCready comes to in the infirmary, learning he's on a Japanese whaling vessel and that Childs went back to the wreck of their base. Mac freaks out, 
trying to warn everyone, but they sedate him. He comes to again, alone. He cuts his bonds and, desperate to assure himself he's human, performs a blood test on himself. He's clean. He steals some clothes and sneaks on deck, taking off with the boat's helicopter. He follows Child's footprints in the snow where they disappear in a crevasse, but when he gets a low fuel warning, he limps north to the flaming wreck that was once their base and manages a crash landing. Childs is nowhere to be found, so Max sets about gathering up and setting fire to what's left of the bodies, including the now-confirmed kill of Nalls, and goes underground where he uncovers what's left of the Blair thing. While attempting to burn another corpse, a flare is shot out of Max's hand by a sniper, and he's suddenly surrounded by a fully equipped Navy SEAL team led by a man named Erskine. Mac tries to explain the nature of the threat, but when he admits he's the one who killed and burned most of the bodies, he's cuffed and taken prisoner. One seal notices the mutation of a corpse and brushes off Frost for a closer look. Mac boots him away, only to get a rifle butt to his skull. As the group awaits an approaching chopper, Tentacle Gross are noticed on the seal who brushed the corpse, and he opens fire on his own team. Many are killed in the ensuing fight, more so when the chopper is shot down into them, and bullets do nothing as the thing continues mutating before Mac takes it out with a grenade. All that's left are him, Erskine, and two injured men who are quickly bound to stretchers. Mac is all set to just wait and die since they have nothing left to burn the bodies with and guarantee the infection stops here. Erskine forces him at gunpoint to take up one stretcher and march alongside on the 30-kilometer trek to an Argentinian base. Along the way, one of the stretchered men dies and is left behind. Arriving at a pass the next morning, it seems they took a wrong turn at some point as the base is nowhere in sight. Mac and Erskine break into a fight, only to be stopped by a team of Argentinians whose base is indeed right nearby. Greeting Mac from among the group is a familiar face, that of Childs. In issue 2, Mac lashes out at Childs before again being cuffed and taken prisoner by Erskine. Childs does his best to call Mac's paranoia about introducing the potential of infection to a new base, especially when they arrive and we discover Campo del Sur is massive, populated by well over a hundred people. However, the personnel have taken Child's stories about the thing to heart, having tested their entire camp and refusing to let anyone back in until they also go through the blood tests. Childs and Mac are clean, but the unconscious soldier on the stretcher bursts into a thing when it comes to be his turn. Soldiers fight the thing into a retreat as it bursts through the wall and out into the snowy wastes. Mac and Childs head a unit to hunt it down, finding along the way the remains of a man it tried to duplicate. They corner it in an ice cave, which Childs lowers into and fends off the massive, fully transformed beast of teeth and tentacles long enough to incinerate it with a firebomb. Returning to the base, it eats at Mac that Erskine was never tested due to the interruption and that he had been insistent on using the radio. Checking the radio room, Mac and Childs find personnel slaughtered and the transcript of a message Erskine sent out for immediate extraction by submarine. Not waiting for backup, Mac and Childs hop on a snowmobile and track Erskine down. Just as he starts to transform, the ice splits beneath him and the tower of a submarine rises into view. As personnel open the hatch, the transforming thing tears into them and invades the sub. Mac and Childs follow it in, doing their best to explain the situation to the crew, but in the chaos, the hatch isn't properly sealed and the sub crashes into an undersea mountain, leaving everyone stranded in quickly rising, freezing water. Everyone who's left makes their way to the bow escape hatch, where the torpedoes are also located in an attempt to blow up the thing, but Childs ends up blowing Mac out the hatch, so our hero never sees what finally happens as he drifts to the surface and pulls himself onto a chunk of floating ice, where the Antarctic winds quickly freeze him over. There are a lot of things this comic book series does right. The art, for one, with its chilling blues and driving winds, absolutely nails the environment, with violent stabs of red every time the thing breaks loose. There's a drawn-out dourness to each scene, with tense canted angles, and every attack is quick and violent and shocking. 
I also like little narrative bits, like a thing launching out even before the test on its blood can be performed, which was a nice nod to the original novella, or a monstrous version that's had time to fully grow in a cave. There's also a fantastic moment where, upon waking, the first thing McCready does is test his own blood. Events have set in such deep paranoia that he doesn't even trust himself, which is a nice play on threads we talked about in our coverage of the John Carpenter movie. Even later on, when his blood is tested again, McCready is staring at it, not entirely trusting that it'll come out human. The dialogue is also decent, with good banter between doubters and paranoids and Mac and Childs putting their heads together to get through situations. That said, there's three big places where this book fails. The first is the plotting. This story is way too compressed, never allowing us to settle into environments before we lurch somewhere else, and opportunities feel missed. We open on a Japanese whaling boat, but instead of playing anything out there, Mac just steals a chopper and we never see it again. When Mac and Erskine reach the Argentinian camp, it's this sprawling place with a huge population, but instead of doing anything within this setting, once the thing is loose, everyone follows it somewhere else. And when the Erskine thing takes us to a submarine, it's instant havoc as everyone just lets Mac and Childs walk on, and within a few pages, we're gone and Mac is just drifting on ice again, exactly as he started. Set pieces are being built which aren't allowed to play to their fullest potential. Any one of these, whaling boat, massive camp, submarine, could have made for a great story in its own right, but by trying to cram them all into a single two-issue tale, none of them gets any room to breathe. Remember how much of a part the base itself played in both early film adaptations? We never get that here. The second main failing is in the characters. There's really nothing to Mac and Childs which speaks to their personality from the Carpenter film. Mac is just the crazy bearded dude telling everyone they're gonna die, and Childs has none of the animosity and macho posturing he had in the earlier film. They're just the bros in the know, and nothing further is developed in any direction. Even the shocking reveal that Childs is alive is largely tempered by nothing much happening as a result, as he and Mac just fight monsters shoulder to shoulder. Having read several of Ferrer's screenplays in the past, while I do think he comes up with nifty plot hooks, these issues with plotting and characters are pretty much par for the course with him, and I think it says a lot that for many of the film projects he's been involved in, almost all have had other writers come in and significantly rework his ideas before any of them made it to screen. Especially his precious project Virus, the finished product of which barely resembles his original script and comic adaptation. Which is good, because as bad as that movie is, his comic was really, really awful. Though I do recommend the film novelization by Stephanie Danielle Perry, that was amazing. As for the third failing, we sadly return to the art and how it additionally weakens the characters. I mentioned how much I like the atmosphere and the violent punch of John Higgins' paintings, and I'm not surprised he had great success as a colorist, but all of his figures are smooth and plasticine, looking like action figures with indistinct faces and rigid expressions. What faces we see, that is, as, combined with the weak writing, we never get to know any of these people. Faces are masked for the most part. Relationships and dynamics are never built. Hell, Erskine, the only real character among them, is completely buried under a helmet, snow mask, and goggles the entire time, and him being a thing makes for a rather predictable revelation. And there's another set piece we haven't talked about. A SEAL team stranded in the remains of the first film's camp. Again, breezed through in just a handful of pages, with zero character development, and then just a few figures wandering in snow before getting to the next wasted set piece. I don't hate this book. Its shortcomings aside, I do like the art for the most part, and it's a breezy enough read that I don't feel my time was wasted, but that's all it is, a breeze. It blows by without leaving any impression, with zero meat to give any of it weight. I first read this comic back in the 90s, and yet nothing stuck with me but MacReady testing himself and a submarine. Hell, I misremembered the entire thing as being set on a submarine, and look how accurately that turned out. It's ultimately one of those midline reads. It does some things right, does other things wrong, and never sorts itself out either way. 
I don't recommend it and have no desire to read it again anytime soon, but nor am I going to caution away anyone curious to do so. Masters of Carpentry can be found at mastersofcarpentry.blogspot.com and is in no way affiliated with John Carpenter or the copyright holders of the films discussed. All rights are reserved and no infringement is intended. Our theme music is Black Rainbow by Jack Locke. To hear more, please visit jacklock.com. That's J-A-K-L-O-C-K-E dot com. <laughs>